Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. The Peter Schiff Show. I've got a lot to talk about in today's podcast, so buckle up. But basically, it's two topics. The announcement of the new Fed chair, that's more of a simple one. I could probably deal with that uh, relatively quickly. But the other more complicated topic is the new tax bill finally released today. They were supposed to release the tax bill yesterday, and I would have done a podcast yesterday, but they punted and they released it this morning. And so I'm going to get into a lot of the details, most of which you're really not hearing uh, from the conventional uh, sources that are covering the tax plan. So I think I'm going to give you a much better analysis of what's there and what's not there than you may have heard elsewhere. But let me get started talking about President Trump's pick to replace Janet Yellen. As far as I'm concerned, he could have just as easily left Janet Yellen in there because he's pretty much nominating the closest thing to Janet Yellen, at least, uh, you know, uh, not uh, gender-wise, but as far as intellectually or policy, he has uh, nominated the person most likely to do exactly what Janet Yellen did for Obama, Jerome Powell will do for Donald Trump. I mean, he, he has pretty much voted in lockstep with Janet Yellen the entire time she has chaired the Fed. The only real difference between the two is party affiliation. Uh, Powell is affiliated with the Republican Party, even though he was nominated to be on the Fed by Barack Obama. 
So obviously not that strong a Republican if he was acceptable to Barack Obama. Also, he uh, doesn't have an economics degree, which, you know, initially you might think, hey, that's a plus, right? Because guys like uh, Bernanke or Yellen, they have PhDs in economics. And of course, they know nothing about economics because they learned from Keynesians. And you might think, well, maybe Jerome Powell might have more common sense because, you know, he he didn't get brainwashed uh, uh, through uh, economics courses. Uh, but he's hung out with these guys long enough that he's probably picked up a lot of their nonsense. So I assume he has all the same uh, failures when it comes to understanding economics as uh, Yellen and Bernanke. But more important than that is the politics of this, because Jerome Powell really embodies Everything that candidate Trump criticized about the Fed and about Janet Yellen. Remember, he accused Janet Yellen of being political, of doing political things, that she was keeping interest rates artificially low. She was trying to make things look better, to make Obama look better, to help Hillary get elected, trying to prop up bubbles in the stock market, that all of this was bad and hurting the economy and it was going to all come back to bite us. And of course, all of that stuff was true which is why a lot of people who were voting for Trump thought that they were voting for change, thought that he was going to drain the swamp. Well, the water level at the swamp is not going down at all with the nomination of Jerome Powell. I mean, he had a chance. I mean, he did interview uh, some people that may have uh, represented a change. John Allison, I think a free market guy, Austrian economist, Ayn Rand fan, Uh, he would have been a a market change in direction at the Fed. His way of thinking, his understanding. He's a smart guy. I've met him several times. I've talked to him. You know, he understands economics. He would have been a game changer. But no, Trump doesn't want to change the game. He wants to keep playing the game. I mean, even when he was talking about John Taylor, you know, even in the waning days of you know the decision, Taylor was already changing his tune, right? He's, Trump is getting his mind right because he started talking about the Taylor rule like it's not really a rule. It's kind of like a suggestion and you don't really have to follow it. But, you know, Trump wasn't necessarily buying that. He didn't want to take a chance on a wild card. Uh, he wanted a lackey. He wanted somebody who would be as political for him as Janet Yellen was for Obama. And so he went with Jerome Powell, right? An insider, a yes man, somebody who is going to fancy himself a member of the Trump team and who will do whatever Trump wants to try to put a Band-Aid on this uh, economy uh, to get him reelected, right? He's going to be political. He's going to keep interest rates artificially low. If the stock market starts to tank, don't worry because now the Fed has got his back. We got the, we got the put back. We got the Powell put. The Powell put is here. If Even if the Yellen put expired because she wasn't a Trump fan, you know that we're going to get a brand new put uh, with Powell and he's going to keep the market up. If it means cutting rates to zero, going negative, so be it. QE4, no problem. Let's get it ready, right? He is the yes man that Trump wants. But again, if anybody thought that Trump was going to do something different, he's not. This was an opportunity to actually try to change things. You know, he talked about the gold standard as a candidate. I mean, there's no gold standard when it comes to Jerome Powell, right? This is business as usual, Keynesian, money printing, bubble blowing, QE, ZERP, all this stuff is going to continue, which means for Trump voters, the pain is going to continue. 
right? They're not going to get relief. We're not going to get real economic growth. We're going to continue to undermine economic growth in order to prop up financial bubbles and to enable the government to keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger and, and spending more money. So this is a bad pick, but this is an establishment pick. And it shows that Trump is in the hip pocket of the establishment and he's more a politician than a statesman. And he is trying to keep the game going rather than change the game. But speaking about uh, keeping the game going, let me talk to the sham that is the tax cuts. You know, apparently Donald Trump wanted to call the plan the cut, cut, cut plan, right? To really emphasize that we were cutting taxes. So let's let's say it three times. Cut, cut, cut. But Instead, I think they ended up naming it the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, right? Because they always want to put jobs on everything, right? Because whatever they do, they want to claim that it's going to create jobs. It's definitely going to create jobs for the accountants. Because one of the things I'm sure of, and I read through or skimmed through the 450-page outline of this plan, and what I can tell you is I believe that taxes will be much more complicated if this bill passes than they are now. Now that's not the case for you know low income earners. So you know if you're if you're a fry cook at McDonald's, yeah, this, you know this is not going to complicate your tax filing, right? Even if you you know if you earn twenty or thirty thousand a year, you know, and you got you know an entry level job somewhere, yeah, I mean I think it will make your tax return a little bit simpler. Not that it was that complicated to begin with, but it will make it a little easier. But if you are running a small business. If you have employees and, you know, you capital expenditures and you're, you know, you're running a business, this is going to substantially complicate your tax uh, filing. And so to the extent that you actually save any money as a result of this, you might end up spending more than you save in extra accounting fees, which, by the way, are no longer deductible, right? When they, when they eliminated a bunch of the uh, itemized deductions, one of the ones that they are eliminating is the preparation fees for your taxes. So people are going to have to spend a lot more money to get their taxes filed. And now none of those expenses are going to be deductible on their tax return. So this really is not this massive tax cut. Donald Trump is out there. Oh, it's the biggest tax cut in history. I mean, it's not even close. I mean, it's, it, it is a cut on net, but it's not even close to being one of the biggest in history. But of course, it's not a tax cut for everybody. That's another lie that is out there. There are a lot of people who are going to see their taxes raised as a result of this bill. Now, overall, the bill does reduce taxes on aggregate, right? So the government will collect less revenue as a result of this bill if it gets passed in its current form, even though there will be individual taxpayers who will end up paying more to the government uh, than they do now. Overall, the government will collect less, which is another reason that this whole thing is a fraud, because there is no real relief. I watched uh, this morning this press conference and these Republicans are talking about how uh, people need relief from high taxes and this is going to uh, relieve people and people are going to have more money in their pocket. There is no real relief because government doesn't get any smaller. The reason taxpayers have such a heavy burden to bear is because government is so big and they have to pay for the cost. And since there is no reduction in the size of government, in fact, government is getting bigger. Government is going to be more expensive next year than it is uh, this year. And the fact of the matter is taxes should be going up on everybody. 
if we really want to keep increasing the size of government and what government spends, then taxpayers need to be forced to, to shoulder that heavier burden. We should be raising taxes on everybody unless we're going to cut government spending. But no, the Republicans are saying we're not going to make government any cheaper. We're, in fact, we're going to provide even more government. We're going to make government bigger and more expensive. But we're just going to relieve you of the burden of paying for it, which is impossible because there are no free lunches. There's no free lunches when the Democrats want to serve them. And there's no free lunches when the Republicans want to serve them. This tax cut is going to end up costing people a lot of money because we're still going to have to pay for government. It's just the government's going to have to get its funding through other sources. So the money it doesn't collect in taxes, it's going to have to borrow. And that money has to be repaid with interest from the very taxpayers who are now getting a cut. So it's just like, hey, if you put something on your MasterCard instead of paying for it today, it doesn't make it cheaper. It makes it more expensive because there's interest that you owe on the balance that you put on a credit card. So it's not like you save money by putting something on a credit card. You end up spending more money. It's just that you don't have to spend it right away. You spend it over time. And so really that's what's happening here is that uh, the Republicans are telling the uh, people to put their taxes on their credit card. And okay, you don't have to pay it today, but over time you're going to have to pay it back. And of course, a lot of the money is going to end up being created by the Federal Reserve because if the federal government cannot find the private buyers to buy up the bonds and the Federal Reserve just prints money to buy the bonds, well, then we have higher inflation. And, you know, I saw a lot of these same uh, Republican congressmen talking about how one of the stimuluses from this uh, tax cut is going to be that more people are going to have more money in their pocket to spend and this is going to stimulate the economy. This is a bunch of Keynesian nonsense. I mean, where are they getting that money? I mean, it's, it's money being created out of thin air. I mean, do you really believe that printing money and spending it into circulation is going to grow the economy? Because that's basically what's happening, right? The government is cutting taxes, but not cutting spending. So they have to create the difference and spend that. As, and now these Republicans are claiming that, that that spending is going to help the economy. It's not. To the extent that tax cuts help the economy, it's because they make businesses more productive. It's because they reduce... Uh, the incentive not to work, or they increase the incentive to make capital investments, to create business, to hire people. It's not about more money in people's pockets, but this isn't even more money in people's pockets because the government has to take the money out of your left pocket to put it in your right pocket, but ultimately they end up taking more uh, from your left than they put into your right, and you're actually worse off. So this is not about economic growth. This is all about politics, but I want to get into to some of the the, the specifics of, uh, of this particular uh, plan. So first of all, the brackets. So we're going down to four tax brackets. We used to have seven, or we still have seven. And so we're going to get rid of three of the brackets. Now, initially, they were going to go down to three brackets, but they decided, as I mentioned in my last podcast, to leave the 39.6% top bracket in place. Now, remember, this is the tax rate that Obama put in. Because the, the, the tax cuts that Bush had expired, the temporary tax cuts, and they made them permanent with the exception of the higher bracket. Okay, so this isn't Obama. This is the Clinton bracket that Bush reduced. And then the Democrats and, and uh, Obama you know, extended the, the Bush tax cuts, but they refused to extend it for the top bracket. And so the Republicans reluctantly went along with it. So now they had an opportunity to reduce it, and they decided not to. So they kept this top bracket there. 
and the bracket kicks in at $500,000. So if you're an individual and you make more than $500,000, you are in the 39.6% bracket. Now, if you're a married couple, you don't have to pay the 39.6% until you are in until you make $1 million. So anything above a million is 39.6. So that 500,000 below is at the 35% uh, tax bracket. So people that do earn between 500,000 and a million as a joint as a couple, they are going to have a little bit of a tax savings right now because under the current bracket, they would start paying the 39.6% um, at $470,000. So there is that $530,000 income bracket there where you're going to get that savings, right? You're not going to pay 39.6, you're going to pay 35. So there's a little bit of a savings, but you know, there are people that are going to have a higher bracket. For example, the 35% bracket for couples starts at $260,000. Well, right now under the current system, if you're a couple making $260,000, you're in the 33% bracket. So for that couple, you've got an actual tax hike even in the bracket that you're in. Now, one of the things that's interesting about that bracket is that the 35% rate for individuals is at 200,000 but for couples it's at 260 so you actually have a marriage penalty there because the 35% tax bracket starts at 200,000 if you're single but if you're married it starts at 260,000 so two people who are making 200,000 each who get married now they're at they're at $400,000 so they're going to be paying a higher tax rate than they would pay if they were if they remained single and they were filing separately. So you have that quirk. Normally, you know, you're better off. Now, obviously, if you're one person and you're making $260,000 and your spouse doesn't work, well, then you're better off being married. But it's where you have the two paychecks that combine uh, that you're going to see this marriage penalty in, in, in certain brackets. But the real problem for the people in the 33% bracket, 35% bracket, has to do with the state that they live in. Because if they live in a state that has high taxes, what happens in this bill is that you can no longer deduct your state income taxes from your federal income taxes. So that means that even people that get a slight reduction in their federal tax rate, the fact that they can no longer deduct from their federal taxes what they pay in state income taxes means that they're going to actually have a net tax hike not a net tax cut. Now, also, when it comes to property taxes, they did settle on a compromise, and that enables you to deduct property taxes up to $10,000. And, you know, for a lot of lower-income tax filers, uh, they're going to, you know, not going to have a a property tax that's over $10,000. But a lot of people that live in Connecticut, uh, New Jersey, New York, you know, their property taxes are much higher. My property tax in my house in Connecticut is $60,000 a year, approximately. So, I mean, $10,000 is nothing. I mean, so I got a, I got $50,000 payment that I can't deduct. And, of course, I can't deduct any of my Connecticut state income taxes. I won't be able to deduct any of that from my, my federal income tax. Fortunately, I'm no longer a resident of Connecticut, and I do have some Connecticut income that I, that I earn for the portion of the year that I spend here where I do some work. Uh, but, you know, most of my money is n- now earned in Puerto Rico, so I'm not a, a Connecticut resident, but it's still going to affect me, but it's going to affect people, certainly Connecticut residents who haven't moved out of state, uh, they're going to pay a big tax. And in fact, 
this raises the incentive for people to move from states like Connecticut to states like Florida, because now there's an added advantage, because this is like a huge tax hike for the state of Connecticut, because the Connecticut income tax used to be deductible. So let's say it's 7%, but the effective rate was only 4% after you deducted it from your state taxes. And now if it's 7%, what's that, an 80% increase or something like that in the effective rate of tax? So now there's a much bigger incentive to move to a state that doesn't have an income tax because you've effectively raised the tax in in states like Connecticut or New Jersey, New York, California, all these states are going to have uh, going to have problems. But also they are limiting the amount of mortgage interest that can be deducted. So right now if you buy a house and you take out a mortgage you can deduct the interest on the first million dollars of your loan. So if you take out a $2 million mortgage, okay, well, you can deduct the interest on the first million. If you take out an $800,000 mortgage, well, you can deduct interest on the entire thing, right? Well, they're changing it so that you can only deduct the interest on a mortgage of up to $500,000. So that means if somebody does buy a house, uh, you know, in, uh, you know in, in, in a high-tax state or any state, to the extent that they are going to use a mortgage, if the mortgage is over $500,000, then any interest payments on the balance above $500,000 will not be tax deductible. And so that will, you know, increase the cost of, of buying a home. But interestingly, you know, they didn't make this apply. They grandfathered in the existing mortgages. So if you already have a million-dollar mortgage, you can still deduct all of the interest on that mortgage. But if you sell that house and buy another house and take a new million-dollar mortgage, then you can only deduct the interest on the first 500000 which will make it less likely that people that have million-dollar mortgages will want to sell their house if they're going to just buy another one with another mortgage. So it will reduce the transactions that take place for you know, more expensive homes because people will kind of be stuck in them because that's the only way they can preserve the tax deductibility of the interest payments on the amount of their mortgage from 500000 to a million. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff in this bill that is going to work to reduce the value of real estate, not just, you know, reducing the mortgage deduction, but the fact that you, you um, will have so many fewer people that are going to be itemizing their deductions. A lot of people aren't going to be taking any deductions for uh, property taxes, even though they can deduct up to 10000 because they're going to just take the standard deduction because there's a lot of other itemized deductions that people are going to lose, like their um, local income tax and some other ones that I'm going to get into. But as a result of this, you're going to have a lot of people who are currently itemizing who are going to just take the standard deduction. If you take the standard deduction, there is no tax benefit to owning real estate. And the way real estate is sold by a lot of realtors is as a tax shelter, as a tax haven. Hey, you know, buy, I've, I've heard people talk to them all the time. Oh, I, I'm earning a bunch of money. I need to go buy a house. You know, I just got a good job. I got a raise. I need, a, I need to buy a house so I don't have to pay all these taxes. I mean, people want to buy a house because they get all these tax write-offs. And embedded in the price of the house is the value of those tax breaks, right? It's part of what you buy. When you buy the house, it's it's there. It's it's an asset because you buy the house, and if you buy a house and you save ten thousand dollars a year on your taxes because you bought a house, well, the present value of all those savings are built into the price, and you pay for it up front. And so, if houses no longer have that, 
then they're going to lose value. Now, that's why all these home builders are against this, because they benefit from the tax breaks, not the buyers, it's the sellers. They're manufacturing these houses that come with a tax break. It's like, you know, we got granite uh, countertops, right? We got sub-zero refrigerators, we got a movie theater, and we get this big shiny tax break right here, right? That's part of what you get in the house. It's, you know, it's like, you know, it's like all the other benefits that, that they built into the house to make it more valuable and more desirable. And now they want to take that thing away. And, and so that's going to reduce the value of the house. But it's also going to reduce the value of homes that people already own, because to the extent that they want to sell them, the potential buyer may not be able to get a tax break. Now, the same thing, too, with these high-end homes, because if you've got a million-dollar home and the buyer is going to need a million-dollar mortgage, even though you still get to deduct the interest on all of your mortgage, the potential buyer will not be able to do that. And that is going to factor into the amount of money that he's willing to pay for your house. So the value is going to go down. But there's a lot of other uh, personal exemptions that go away uh, that you, people aren't going to be able to deduct the interest on their student loans. Uh, people aren't going to be able to deduct moving expenses, uh, medical expenses. I mentioned already, uh, you know, the, the, the tax preparation costs. But probably one of the biggest ones is non-reimbursed employer business expenses. See, right now, there are a lot of people who have jobs, W-2 income, but they also have some business-related expenses that they pay out of pocket. And they can deduct those expenses from their taxes. I mean, it used to be you can deduct them all. And I forget when they made something where the, the, the expenses had to exceed 2% of your income. So if you earned $100,000 a year and you had $1,000 worth of uh, business expenses that your employer didn't reimburse, you, you, know, you were out of luck. You couldn't deduct it. But if you had $5,000 worth of those types of expenses... Uh, then you you know you would deduct three right because you you have to get over two, but now they are limiting it completely. And what would that be? I mean, I, let's say you're a stockbroker and you work for Merrill Lynch, right? And Merrill Lynch puts you on a commission and you earn a W two income. There are a lot of stockbrokers who probably claim a home office. They say, look, I work partially from home. Uh, I don't always work from home, but I do have a home office where I do work. I work evenings. I work at weekends. Sometimes I have clients meet me at my house, right? They do that. And so they're able to take a deduction for that home office. And, you know, they have various expenses related to that home office, part of their utility bill or, you know, whatever they're going to allocate to it. Then they say, well, you know, I've got a car, but, you know, I drive my car on business appointments. I go out and see clients. So now they deduct the percentage of their car, that's business use. Hey, I subscribe to the Wall Street Journal. Uh, all right, I'm going to deduct that. Or oh, I went, I, I flew to uh, uh, someplace to go to a seminar on investment products, and I'm going to deduct the travel expense there. I'm going to deduct the cost of going to the seminar. Oh, I had, you know, some continuing education that I had to pay for or licenses that I had to cover myself. Or, hey, I had some entertainment expenses. I was whining and dining some prospects or some clients. I took somebody to the dinner, took someone to a ball game. They write all this stuff up, right? There's all kinds of deductions that employees take off their taxes, right? That are legitimate business expenses and they're able to write them off. They're not going to be able to write them off anymore. So even if you're in a lower bracket, if you can't reduce your taxable income by your business expenses, then you end up actually paying more in taxes. That's why I think a lot of people that are in this situation may end up trying to uh, quit their jobs and become a 1099 employee so that they can 
uh, actually have a business, and then that business would be able to deduct all these expenses, uh, which they can't do as an employee. And that would just complicate their tax filing, and that would have them spending more money on, on, on their accountant uh, in order to you know, keep all the extra records and, and, and fill out the more complicated uh, tax returns, which brings me to the, uh, the business part of the tax cuts because that's a lot of people are missing the boat here and this is the passive income the llc's and the rate there is being reduced from what was a maximum rate of 39.6 percent to now 25 percent because llc's s corporations the owners of those corporations pay taxes based on their individual rate now the reason for that is because they don't want to incorporate see everybody has the ability to form a corporation but the problem with forming a corporation was double taxation, right? Because the corporate tax rate was 35%. But even now, with the lower corporate tax rate, and I'm going to get to corporate tax rates last, but even there at 20%, that's on the corporate income. When you go and you pay the dividends to your shareholders, they got to pay the dividend tax, which is another 24%, right? And the way it was is now, the corporate tax is 35%. And then when you pay a dividend, it's another 24%. So that's more than the 39.6%. So people chose to be S-Corps or LLCs because even though they were paying the 39.6% rate, that effective rate was lower than the corporate rate because of the effect of, of double taxation. So now they're saying, oh, but you can get 25% on the LLC or partnership. And this is being touted as a big boom for small business because they're going to have their taxes cut from you know 39.6% to um, to 25%. This is not true. This is not nearly as big a cut as the media is portraying or uh, the Republicans are portraying. First of all, they've exempted so many different businesses from even being eligible for the 25% rate. So financial advisors, you know, stockbrokers, money managers, lawyers, accountants consultants, architects, all sorts of professional services are completely exempt. I mean, if if the people who are doing the work, right, if they're if if it's if people are hiring the company because of their talent, their name, their brand, you know, professional athletes, entertainers, all these people are exempted. So there's a lot of personal services cannot qualify under any circumstances. So a lot of people who are currently earning money, operating businesses, are not going to get any tax relief at all because the 39.6 bracket is not being lowered. They're not going to be able to qualify for the uh, 25% bracket. So they're going to be paying taxes at the 39.6% rate. They will get some modest relief on the income that they have uh, below that level, but not much. But then if they live certainly in New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, California, what they save there will be more than offset by what they lose uh, in their lack of ability to deduct uh, their state taxes, their property taxes, all their mortgage interest and things like that. So for, for most higher income earners, this is a net loser. I think the main net beneficiaries of the tax cuts will be lower to moderate income uh, payers, certainly with small families, uh, people with no kids or one or two kids. Uh, single married people making you know forty to a hundred thousand, you're going to definitely see uh, tax cuts, and I think your taxes will be a little simpler. Uh, but people running businesses, people with higher incomes, uh, are generally not going to see tax cuts. Uh, they will see uh, tax increases, and they will see that their taxes 
get more complicated. But on the people who qualify for the 25% rate, right? If you if you operate, let's say you operate a a, a, a dry cleaning uh, business or something like that, or a restaurant or whatever, you operate some kind of business as a small business owner where you're actually qualified for the 25% rate. It only applies to 30% of your income. You have to take 70% of the income and pay the personal rate on it. So let's say you run a business and maybe you don't own one dry cleaner. Maybe you own a string of dry cleaners, whatever, and you're making a million dollars a year profit. Well, you have to pay yourself a salary of 700000 and pay your personal income tax rate on that 700000 You only get the 25% rate on the 300000 That's how it is. And, you know, of course, if your business is small enough, if you're only making $100,000 a year in profit, the 25% rate is immaterial because you'd be in a lower bracket than that anyway. Uh, just based on your individual rate. But um, the effective rate, if you figure that somebody that operates a business is going to pay 39.6% on 70% of their income, and then they're going to pay 25% on the other 30%, if you net the effective tax rate, it comes out to, I think, 35.2%. So that is a small reduction from 396 to 35.2, it is a little bit of a reduction. And so people that are earning tens of millions of dollars uh, operating LLCs that are not exempt, right, they will get a tax cut. But, you know, it's going to be more complicated. Their accountant's going to charge them more money uh, for, for setting up, you know, these returns. It is going to be more involved. But there is there are going to be some tax cuts there. Now, let me get to the biggest cuts are going to be corporate taxes. Corporate taxes are going down from 35 to 20%. Uh, now, there are some changes to the deductions. I've read that, you know, as a benefit, you can expense, I think for the next five years, you get 100% expensing of capital investment. That's good. But if you have debt, other than I think as property companies, but corporate debt, only interest on 70% of your debt is going to be deductible. So the cost of that debt is going to go up. The cost of your existing debt, I guess, is going to go up. And the cost of the, the new debt that you accumulate is, uh, is going to go up. Also, there is a tax on foreign companies that have you know multinationals that they're not paying now. I think it's a 12% tax on your foreign earnings. Even if you don't repatriate them, you still have to pay the tax. So this is going to be the first time ever that U.S. companies were having to pay taxes on income that they earned abroad but did not repatriate. Uh, so that represents a tax hike. Also, I read there's a 20% uh, tax on uh, money that is paid from a U.S. company to a foreign affiliate or subsidiary. That's going to heavily impact, let's say, insurance companies that use uh, reinsurance. Uh, and, of course, they're just going to pass this tax on because it's a tax it's like a sales tax, and they're just going to pass it on to uh, their customers in the form of higher uh, insurance premiums. So there are going to be winners and losers. And of course, you know, there are some various tax breaks that may go away for corporations. But look, uh, overall, corporations in general will pay lower taxes, which is good in theory. I mean, I think the corporate tax rate should be zero. And so the closer we get to zero, the better. But I think we should just, you know, get rid of all the complicated deductions and various schemes that are embedded in the tax code because the corporations themselves, they don't pay the taxes. There's only three possible uh, constituents that can pay corporate taxes. The employees, 
who pay the taxes in the form of lower wages, the shareholders who pay the taxes in the form of lower dividends or lower stock prices, and the customers who pay the taxes in the form of higher prices. Now, obviously, by lowering corporate taxes, these various groups will benefit in some way. Uh, Some workers might get more money. uh, Some consumers might pay lower prices and some stockholders might get a bigger dividend or the company will be able to buy back more stock and therefore the stock price will be higher. So if you sell, you'll, you'll get a better price. But unfortunately, this is not really the type of tax reform that we need to make America great again. This is more gimmicks. This is more of the same type of tax cuts we've had in the past. We're not changing the system, right? Real tax reform would be about trying to create an economy that can grow faster because taxes are not as big an economic drag. And that would be great to abolish the income tax entirely because it costs a fortune to comply with it, with the tax attorneys and lawyers. But that's not going to go away. We're going to have more of that with this plan. You know, we're not switching from a uh, a income tax system to a consumption-based tax system. That would be a lot more pro-growth. We're not ab- abolishing the corporate tax altogether. We're making the tax on small businesses more complicated. Uh, so this is not going to result in a bunch of economic growth. And of course, you know, people can't look at the tax cuts in a vacuum. The tax cuts will produce bigger deficits. The bigger deficits will mean interest rates will be higher than they otherwise would have been without those larger deficits. It's going to produce more uh, money printing, higher prices, more inflation. That means companies are going to see their raw material costs go up. I mean, there are a lot of ways that companies are going to see their income diminished as a result of the added deficits that are generated to finance these tax cuts. And of course, if your income is lower, then the tax cuts have less value. And in fact, there could be some companies that have income now that have no income uh, in a year or two. And if you have no income to tax, then the fact that the tax brackets are lower doesn't do you any good. If you have no taxable income, it doesn't matter what the tax rate is because you're not paying anything. Oh, you know, I I forgot to mention one thing. I, I got no coverage at all on this. You know, when they eliminated all the itemized deductions, they also are eliminating the deductibility of alimony. And for those of you who have never paid alimony or don't understand how alimony works, but when you pay alimony to your ex, the alimony payment is tax deductible to the payer. Now, when uh, your ex receives the alimony, and it's generally the, 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 the woman that generally gets the alimony, although not in all cases. Sometimes you have a high-earning woman, and she ends up paying alimony to uh, her uh, husband or ex-husband. But in most cases, you have a, a, a guy paying alimony to his ex-wife. And the ex-wife, when she gets the alimony check, that's taxable income. That's part of her taxable income. So the, the husband, the payer, deducts the alimony, from his taxes, but now the wife, as she receives it, the ex-wife, she includes the income. And that, that's fair, right? Because the husband is really diverting part of his income to the wife. So he shouldn't have to pay income taxes on the portion of his income that he didn't get to keep. The wife should have to pay those taxes. And it generally, and not all the time, but generally the guy who's paying the alimony is in a higher tax bracket than the ex-wife receiving it. Right, So it made sense for the guy to pay, let's say the guy's in the 39.6 bracket and the wife's in the 25% bracket. He gets to take a deduction at 39.6 and his ex-wife pays the tax at 25. So it was a net tax savings. But based on this new uh, rule, I mean, if it goes into effect, 
You can't deduct anything. Now, I wasn't sure if it was grandfathered in or not. I tried to read this, and I really couldn't even understand what I was reading as to whether or not this applies to alimony payments that you're already making or alimony payments that may be agreed to in the future. I have a feeling that it's retroactive. Like, if you're paying alimony now, that you can't deduct it. That's what I think. But, you know, I could I could be wrong. But, obviously, this is a huge uh, loss for somebody that's that's paying alimony. I mean, sometimes these alimony payments can be very large. I mean, you can have a guy that's making 400000 a year paying his wife 100000 a year in alimony. Now, if at least he can deduct that from his income, then he's not paying income taxes on 400000 He's paying income taxes on 300000 And his wife is paying the income tax on the other hundred. But if he can't deduct it, he's paying the guy is paying income tax on four hundred thousand, even though he only got to keep three hundred. He had to give a hundred to his ex-wife, who's paying taxes on it again. And so, if you figure the government would be collecting the income tax twice on the exact same hundred thousand dollars, so this is a big windfall for the government and a loss uh, for the payer of alimony. Now, obviously, what will probably happen as a result of this, which shows you, you know, how people change to fit the new tax system, right? behavior changes. See, the government is probably assuming they're going to get a certain amount of tax revenue based on eliminating the deductibility of alimony because they can just look at, well, how much alimony is paid and how much the deduction is costing the government, right? Because people are deducting their alimony payments and say, well, we're not going to allow these payments to be deducted anymore. uh, And so we're going to get all this extra money, right? Well, here's what's going to happen. People that are currently paying alimony will get together with their exes and they will redo uh, their support agreements, and they will eliminate the alimony, and they will instead pay child support. Now, obviously, there's going to have to be children in order for this plan to work, but there generally are children involved, because when you pay child support, those payments are not deductible now to the payer, but they're tax-free to the payee. And so if this bill passes, there will be a big tax savings for uh, people to pay child support instead of alimony because I can pay, you can pay a lower child support because the person receiving it doesn't have to pay taxes. Now, people prefer alimony now because you could deduct it. But once you can't deduct alimony or child support, then what's better to pay your ex alimony out of which she has to pay income taxes or to pay her child support out of which she pays nothing. So what will happen, and I'm just going to make up some numbers in that exact but let's say there's a guy paying his ex-wife $5,000 a month in alimony. Uh, instead, he'll pay her $3,500 a month in child support, right? So, and maybe it's about the same, you know, after-tax cost to him, and maybe it's about the same after-tax money to her. So it's about the same. But what happens is the government doesn't get the money that they were counting on because the alimony that they wanted to tax no longer exists because the taxpayers have altered their behavior. They've gone and and changed things to avoid the tax. And that's what's going to happen. I mean, a lot of states, too, once they realize that income taxes are not deductible, they'll start imposing payroll taxes on employers so that the employers will pay the income tax, not the employees. Those will be deductible business expenses. And so people will earn less money because their taxes will be paid uh, by their employers instead of by them, and the government won't get as much money. I mean, a lot of things are going to change because people will always try to arrange their affairs so as to pay the lowest possible tax. 
And so once the government makes changes to the tax laws, people change their behavior. And then all of a sudden, this pile of money that you thought you were going to tax isn't there anymore because people have changed. You know, I made this comment about in Puerto Rico, you know, one of the things they did in Puerto Rico is they imposed a inventories tax on businesses that had inventory. So at the end of the year, whatever your inventory is, you add it up and you pay a tax on the value of the inventory, right? And the government hoped to collect a bunch of taxes because they looked at all the inventory and they said, hey, let's levy a tax on this inventory. And, you know, we know how much the inventory is worth. And so we could figure out what the tax is going to collect. Well, the tax barely collected anything. Why? Because businesses, now that the government was taxing inventory, businesses decided they didn't want to keep any inventory because they didn't want to pay the tax. And so the result is the inventory that everybody wanted to tax goes away. So now there's no tax revenue. But of course, the unintended consequences of all this is that now when you want to buy something in Puerto Rico, it's just not on the shelf, right? You got to wait. They order it, you know, one at a time and you got to wait a few weeks uh, for the product to show up because the, the company doesn't want to take a chance of holding onto it. It doesn't sell. And now it's part of his inventory and he has to pay a tax. So they want to keep minimal inventory to minimize the tax. But now if somebody wants to buy something, they got to go ship it in. And, and so it drives up costs. It makes things less convenient. So everybody loses because these idiot politicians don't understand how taxes alter behavior and how people uh, change in order to accommodate uh, the tax benefits. And it works the same way with welfare payments. I mean, the government sees a problem and they, oh, here's some poor people. So let's create a welfare program. And they think it's going to cost a certain amount of money, but it ends up costing a lot more because now people rearrange their finances in order to qualify for the benefits. In fact, some of them just lie in order to qualify for the benefits. So now there's a lot more people applying for the benefits than you thought were there because the minute you start handing out benefits, people try to figure out how to qualify so they can they can partake. But in any event, this is all really a bunch of hype, a bunch of smoke and mirrors. Yes, there are net tax cuts here, but a lot of people are going to pay higher taxes not lower taxes. They are not enormous tax cuts by any stretch of the imagination. The only way we can have enormous tax cuts, and I think we need enormous tax cuts, is to have enormous cuts in government spending. But there are no Republicans or not enough Republicans who are actually willing to do that. They don't want to reduce the size of government. They want to keep making government bigger and bigger and bigger. And so all we can do is pretend that we're cutting taxes. We can have all this pomp and circumstance surrounding tax cuts that really don't exist. Yes, they're there, right? I don't know what it's going to cost. Maybe a couple of trillion dollars over 10 years, which is what? 200 billion a year, which is peanuts. I mean, I would like to see real tax relief. Let's abolish the income tax completely so that nobody has to pay it and nobody has to calculate it. You know, I forgot to mention, there are a couple of good things in here. They get rid of the alternative minimum tax. So that will simplify taxes for people that had to calculate their taxes based on the alternate minimum tax. They do phase out the estate tax. It doesn't go away right away. It goes away eventually. My opinion is it's never going to go away because before it actually goes away, somebody's going to come in and change it and prevent it from dying. I think that's what's going to happen. You know, they talk about, oh, we made these corporate tax cuts permanent. There's no way they're permanent. They're not going to last beyond the next election. Do you think Bernie Sanders, if he's president or somebody like him, you think if we have Democrats controlling the Congress, they're going to look at these tax corporate tax rates at 20% and say, well, you know, they're permanent. We can't do anything about it because, you know, Trump said they were permanent. Yeah, there's nothing permanent. None of the, in fact, all these tax cuts are a down payment on tax hikes. 
you know, what would make them permanent is if we had huge reductions in government spending. If we actually shrunk the deficit, then you would have some potential permanence. But if you're making government bigger, if you're making government more expensive, then you know taxes are going to have to be much higher in the future to pay for the additional government uh, that our leaders voted for. Thank you.